0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
3: in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a conflict that will only get more brutal. U.S. officials warn more indiscriminate tactics coming from Russian forces in an attempt to suppress the Ukrainian resistance. We're live from the White House. Plus, Apple stopping all product sales in Russia saying the company stands with all of the people who are suffering as a result of the violence. And Airbnb says it'll help shelter 100,000 Ukrainian refugees who fled their country as Russian forces continue their assault. My conversation with Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky later this hour. announcing that it's now labeling tweets affiliated with Russian state media, an effort, the company says, to quote, significantly reduce the circulation of content pushed by the Russian government. Twitter also saying it'll put labels on other state-affiliated media outlets in coming weeks. My next guest says this is an important step as we examine the role of disinformation on social media. Joining me now, Renee DiResta. She is a research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. She spent years studying disinformation and even testified before Congress on these issues. Renee, great to have you back with us. So talk to us about the significance of labeling state-affiliated media. And is labeling enough, or should it be blocked
1: entirely, to stop the spread of disinformation? These are really hard questions, Emily. Thanks for having me on. Um, First of all, the labeling state media initiatives actually began in early 2020 when we started to see accounts out of China, uh, Chinese state media, using Facebook, using Facebook ads in particular, to push false and misleading claims about COVID to audiences worldwide. That was one of the initial events that kind of precipitated the idea that People who are receiving information should know what the source is, particularly if the source is from an account linked to a foreign government. A lot of the conversation about disinformation on social media focuses on the bots and the trolls and the kind of covert chatter that comes and goes. You know, we see waves of accounts come and then get taken down. And those accounts are interesting. Those accounts can potentially shape a conversation, maybe participate in making something trend. But ultimately, state media accounts have standing audiences in the tens to hundreds of millions of followers. And these are the mouthpieces, the very overt, attributable broadcast mouthpieces uh, that governments have built up over time to put their view of events out to the world. Uh, In a conflict... Sorry, go ahead. What are you let's let's talk about that in the current
3: conflict, what are you seeing from Russian state-run media that is particularly alarming and how widespread is it on big social platforms? So what
1: we're seeing is is states using their media outlets to target different types of messages to different people, depending on where they are. So Russia has not really done a whole lot targeting Western audiences in this particular conflict. We are not the uh, the, the the audiences that they consider most relevant. They're really focusing their communication domestically on their own citizens, trying to create support for a conflict. Uh, and then they're focusing near to the conflict itself, trying to mislead the people of Ukraine, trying to make them think that their government is leaving, that they're Fighters are giving up. Uh, that that you know that that the that the resistance is collapsing to demoralize the public there, and that is where, and particularly in a situation like this, some of the false and misleading information, including that put out by state media, can have a significant degree of harm in the conflict area itself. So Western audiences or non-regional audiences are a wholly separate uh, issue. They may be trying to shape public perception, but ultimately the thing that is the real concern that platforms are trying to be aware of is information from Russia targeting people in Ukraine or targeting people in the immediate region because they are trying to use the information war to bolster uh, the shooting war. And to your understanding what has the impact
3: of that been? I mean, you know, we've heard reports from folks in Russia, folks who have family in Russia that they don't many of them don't have any idea
1: the extent of what's really going on. We've seen the same the same commentary from people from even captured soldiers who say we were told that they would welcome us. We were not told that this was uh, that this was what we were going to be going there for. So there's a whole lot to, to kind of unpack and, and, and try to understand in that dynamic. But one thing that's been really remarkable about this is the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian ministers, constantly on Twitter, constantly on social platforms, on Telegram and other places, telling the world what is actually happening, actively pre-bunking. You have President Zelensky uh, regularly uh, streaming himself, you know, reinforcing the fact we are here, we are fighting. And so in that in that action, in that... that um, quite visible use of social media from the Ukrainian government, from the people of Ukraine, you are seeing a pretty remarkable pushback against uh, against Russia's efforts here. And this is where this question of what should be blocked, what should be allowed, um, you know, the people are spending a lot of time actually kind of flooding the pages of Russian state media, leaving pro-Ukraine comments at this point. So I think the decision to Uh, to respond to governments in Europe and others who want to see content either uh, made inaccessible or or temporarily blocked in certain regions makes sense in a particular part of the world that maybe is more directly impacted by certain types of misinformation versus what we're seeing in the West where you know American audiences can still go and see this content if they're so inclined. Absolutely. The way that President Zelensky
3: has been uh, communicating with his people and with people around the world has been incredibly powerful. What do you think the platform should be doing? I mean, Meta announced it stopped recommending Russian state media to Facebook and Instagram users. Is that enough? Is it enough to do it now? Should it be, you know, you know, glass beyond, uh, you know, when this war, hopefully this war is over?
1: That's a really challenging question. For a long time, we've had this idea, you know, in in America um, that Under something like the Foreign Agent Registration Act, we should know what foreign governments are saying. We should be able to receive that information, that communication. But in a time of crisis such as this, uh, in a time in which life and death decisions can can come about as a result of people seeing incorrect information, uh, there are rules that are being put into play in the short term that need to be more carefully considered as we evaluate where to go in the long term.
3: Now, you talked about how difficult it is to discern misinformation on TikTok in particular. Is there something different about TikTok that makes it more of a minefield when it comes to misinformation and why?
1: TikTok is, you know, most people consume TikTok in their app. It's, um, you know, I opened up my TikTok the other night and my, the very first video that began to play was a video game and it had a, you know, nameless account. It was a shooting video game, first person shooter. Um, and uh, they were claiming that this was a scene of a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, Twitter has been pretty good about uh, either labeling or throttling these, you know, uh, Facebook as well. Uh, but on, on TikTok, there it is with, you know, kind of a million likes and it's uh, right there. That's the first thing that, uh, that plays. And so the other thing that TikTok does not have is actually that that very basic state media labeling. Um, so when there is content that is produced by propagandists, the audience doesn't know. So this combination of content being repurposed, um, content being put out by you know by a, an unverified or actively um, you know incentivized to harm kind of source, uh, the the people who are receiving the content on the platform can't tell. It, it takes them a lot of extra time to go and try to reverse image search a clip from a video, which is not something that is native or easy to do on a mobile phone when the information is being pushed to you. So I think that TikTok really lags uh, its partners in the social media, of the big social media players, in not having these policies in place. And more importantly, we're seeing meta and we're seeing Twitter reacting very quickly to to either take down networks that they've found or to come up with these new labeling policies uh, that are specifically tailored for the current events on the ground, and we don't really see TikTok um, following suit in that regard.
3: Interesting that you see TikTok being behind there. Uh, Thank you for helping us navigate some of these really thorny issues, Renee DeResta, researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Good to have you with us. Coming up, is the Zoom glory over? We're going to talk with Zoom CFO Kelly Stuckelberg after the company's projected sales this quarter fell short of Wall Street estimates, how it can earn back investor confidence. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
4: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
3: Well, as more employees return to work in their offices, questions loom about whether Zoom's appeal during the pandemic era will fade. Zoom shares have declined by more than 75% from their October 2020 high. How will the company sustain growth beyond the pandemic boom? CFO Kelly Steckelberg with us now for more. Kelly, I have to ask you, given the geopolitical situation, your reaction to what we're seeing in Ukraine. Obviously, there's a humanitarian concern, but how are you viewing the impact on the economy and to potentially Zoom's business?
5: So, first of all, of course, our hearts go out to everyone impacted by this unfortunate situation. We um, feel, feel lucky as an organization and a company that we don't have any employees that are directly impacting the region. We do have some of their family members that are there, so we're doing everything that we can to help. And we have very minimal exposure from a revenue perspective in either of the two regions. So in terms of the impact that we're, we expect directly on our business, it, it's really de minimis.
3: So let's talk about Zoom. You know, as I said, there are questions about whether the glory days are over, and I'm sure that you will disagree. You're planning to stop reporting the number of customers with over 10 employees, pivot to reporting just the number of enterprise customers. Can you explain that change and what it means for this bigger picture?
5: Sure. So first of all, I just want to highlight we were very pleased with our results for FY22 that we reported yesterday growing year-over-year 55% to over $4.1 billion. And as you highlighted, we really have seen tremendous growth in two parts of our business, which is the enterprise, which is that, that it's touched by our direct, our channel, and our ISV partners, and then our online business, which is now approximately 50% of our business. So we are shifting metrics, as you mentioned, to focus on the enterprise, which is this is really where we see the long-term sustainable growth of our business. And we saw strong performance here with, you know, customers with more than, you um, of trailing 12 months revenue accelerating. We saw a strength with Zoom phone that had a record quarter with over 550 seats added. And so we're really excited about the future. We also last week announced Zoom Contact Center, which is our cloud contact center solution, which is fully integrated into the Zoom platform. So this is really a big year of transition for Zoom as we're moving from being a killer meeting app to a platform for communications and collaboration.
3: Right. Now, I'm curious if you can clarify Zoom's stance on Ukraine. I noticed that some parts of the country, the separatist areas, Crimea, uh, etc., not serviced by Zoom, but Russia's not on the list of banned countries. Can you explain that?
5: So we do have some business in in, in the region of Russia that is mostly through resellers. And we will continue, of course, to comply with all U.S. laws and sanctions, and we're very closely monitoring those.
3: Is there any consideration of self-sanctioning? Obviously, we saw Apple take a dramatic move today forward as well. Yeah.
5: We certainly internally keep discussing all the options in how do we best support everyone that's in you know UK, re- Ukraine region and how do we do what's appropriate and what should we do as a good corporate citizen. So... As this is a you know very quickly evolving um, situation, as you well know, we keep discussing it and monitoring it and trying to make decisions in real time basis.
3: And you know, to this bigger question, you mentioned Zoom Phone earlier. Talk to us about how well these ancillary ancillary businesses are doing, and whether you see that sort of padding, you know, any lack of growth you might see in the core part of the business over the longer term.
5: Yeah. So our strategy has been from the beginning to start with Zoom meetings and then continue to expand our share of wallet from our customers by selling them additional services, and Zoom Phone is a perfect example of that. We also see Zoom Rooms as organizations are thinking about welcoming their employees back to the office. The conference room strategy is really key to make sure that as they have employees working remotely remotely that it's inclusive and that they're bringing them together in a way that works for everybody, those that are inside the room and those that are without. Also, just as we expect the future of work to be hybrid, we also expect events to be hybrid as well. And our new product, Zoom Events, went GA last year. And that's really, as we look forward to these right. large events and people want to come together, but they also want to have that virtual component.
3: Okay. Zoom CFO Kelly Sneckelberg, always great to have you here. Thank you, Kelly, for taking the Thanks. time to join us. Airbnb is offering free shelter for up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees fleeing the Russian invasion of their country. CEO Brian Chesky telling me he plans to work with neighboring European states to provide long-term stays as well. Take a listen to my conversation with him earlier today.
6: We announced yesterday that Airbnb in partnership with Airbnb.org and our host community have a goal to house up to 100,000 refugees fleeing Ukraine. Now, since we made that announcement, we've had over 30,000 people visit the page to learn about how to be a host or to donate. And we're just trying to get more word out because basically the name of the game is, the more hosts we have, the more refugees we can house.
3: What's the feedback you're getting from governments, from border crossings, about the situation that these refugees find themselves in, in the crosshairs of a war?
6: Yeah, I mean, we've reached out to 14 different governments in Central Eastern Europe, governments like Poland and Hungary and Romania and Germany. And what they're telling us is mostly thank you, because the uh, last reports I heard, over 600,000 refugees That have been fleeing Ukraine and so these governments need to find a way to house them and we can provide as an infrastructure. You know we've housed 54,000 refugees for free since we started Airbnb and we've housed over 100,000 people in need for all different events for free. So I think we can be we're being viewed I hope as a solution to a problem that they have. We can be a great partner and I think they're appreciative of the support and the help
3: what's been the response from hosts in these countries? Has there been an outpouring of support?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's just starting obviously in the last 24 hours, but we have, we have had a large response so far. <clears throat> just to give you a point of reference, two years ago when the pandemic initially, of course, broke out, um, we, were, we worked with the French government, for example, to provide housing for workers in the front line. Tens of thousands of hosts stepped up. We had thousands, of, tens of thousands of hosts step up to provide housing for Afghan refugees, and we're expecting a pretty big response. Again, the main thing we need to do is just make sure that in the kind of flood of all the noise going on, that people who have homes that have availability in these countries know that they can take in refugees.
3: Now, I I know Airbnb has a significant number of listings in Ukraine, given the number of short-term rentals I see in Kyiv, in Lviv, in Odessa. Do you have employees in Ukraine? And what is the status of your operations and hosts there?
6: Yeah, we, 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 we don't have employees, uh, we, don't, we don't have a meaningful number of employees in Central Eastern Europe. We're primarily in certain hubs. Um, now as you imagine, we have thousands of listings in countries in all over Central and Eastern Europe. And so our, our big focus right now, right now we're focused on two big priorities. Number one, we we're trying to make sure that our hosts and our community is safe, so we're doing a lot of outreach to our hosting guests in countries all over Central Eastern Europe. The second focus we have is try to house as many refugees as, pro- as possible. And this entire refugee effort, Emily, really started three days ago. You know, it was Thursday, Friday, it became apparent that there were going to be hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Ukraine, and so we've worked all weekend through yesterday to be able to mobilize this effort.
3: Now several companies have been self-sanctioning, pulling back their business operations in Russia. We just saw Apple pause all product sales in Russia. I know Airbnb also has a number of listings in Russia. Will you consider halting business there? Uh, what kind of conversations are you having?
6: Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, we have our hands full right now because we made this huge commitment to house up to 100,000 refugees. That being said, I'll say two things. Number one, um you know, we are we are going to cooperate with the U.S. government. We're in constant contact with them and supportive of whatever sanctions that they intend to impose. Number two, as a practical matter, a lot of the sanctions been imposed on the Russian banks in Russia have limited our ability to do business, the ability of people in Russia to receive money and the ability of people in Russia to pay. So as a practical matter, a lot of our business is probably going to be on pause just from the inability to be able to pay. But we are looking at other steps. Um, as you can imagine, and we're just triaging right now.
3: So on that note, how are you expecting the war to impact travel overall across Europe? I mean, what are you bracing for here?
6: Hard to know. I, I don't really know what is going to unfold over the coming weeks and months. But what I will say is that whatever happens in Europe, our business is incredibly resilient. I mean, we have nearly every type of home in nearly every type of community, at nearly every price point. And I think what the last two years have shown is, however the world changes, our business can't adapt. And so, you know, we are continue to ask ourselves, how can we help in this time of need? The most important way we can help right now is housing people that need a place to stay. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I'm sure this is going to have a, a disruption on European travel, but we'll be able to adapt to whatever that disruption is.
3: Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky there. You can catch more of my interview with Chesky at Bloomberg.com.
4: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
3: Time now for our crypto report. I want to bring in our crypto contributor, Shnali Basik, as we see Bitcoin surging for a second day. Shnali, are we seeing Bitcoin decoupling from traditional markets here, beginning to trade on its own? And is this being influenced by what's happening?
7: Yeah, there's a few really interesting things happening in the market here, Emily. You have Bitcoin prices themselves getting closer now to $44,000, really getting lift here the last couple of days. And if you take a look at the prices here, you take a look at a Bitcoin price that's really- over the last two or three days, really much higher than four days ago, while stocks in that period over the last two days have dropped, where there was a correlation just about a week or so ago that it looks like it's starting to break off. I also want to take a look here at Ethereum prices because you have Ethereum here now reaching about $3,000, uh, and it also has had a significant lift the last couple of days. Now, when you take a look at volumes, you see that Ethereum also closely tied to a lot of stable coins a lot of discussion around stable coins and the value of them in this uh, new era where there's a lot of uncertainty besides ethereum you're seeing a lift in stable coins like binance the us dollar and tether and so let's see when volumes are really very high in
3: those assets how much this can sustain into the next couple of days All right, Shanali, stick with us. I want to continue this conversation about crypto and the role in the Ukrainian war now with our next guest, Lee Drogan from Starkiller Capital. Lee, you've been uh, tweeting furiously about some of these issues, and I'm curious what you read into the rise in crypto. Is this solely to do with what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine? Is it because there's simply more demand there?
8: There's definitely a spot bid that's independent of other risk assets. And, you know, as you just pointed out, the correlations have definitely broken off. Specifically, you know, we still have a VIX, equity VIX, above 30, which historically has led to incredibly high correlations between crypto and equities. We've also seen on-chain analytics as well as spot flow coming from different exchanges that basically says there's, there's something between three and four times the amount of volume in ruble to BTC or ETH pairs on these centralized exchanges, and that's that's a one-way trade, obviously, right now. So there's definitely a bid coming out of that uh, area of the world for obvious reasons. People are trying to get the hell out of rubles. Uh, how long that lasts is, is definitely a question, because the Russians are cutting off you know, all FX flows out of the country, and at some point, you're just not going to be able to use a, a card or a bank account to uh, put any more money into these exchanges.
3: So look, certainly we're seeing crypto be used to support uh, the Ukrainian resistance effort in incredibly powerful ways. There's also this major concern that the Russians could use cryptocurrency to circumvent sanctions. Do you see that as a real
8: risk? I don't think it's a reasonable scenario today come back in three or four years from now, maybe sooner, and maybe the market is liquid and large enough to the point where it could support that kind of evasion. But today, it, it just it wouldn't be possible. Basically, uh, one, they have capital controls on everything at this point. So you, you've got to try and get it out of a bank account and on to a centralized exchange. That's hard enough. And in that part of the world, there really aren't that many DeFi direct on ramps either. And so getting the DeFi isn't really that easy. But even if you were able to get it into a CeFi exchange, so you're going to do this in Bitcoin, which really isn't a great medium of transfer given its volatility, and there really aren't enough DeFi stablecoin pairs between the ruble and USD or EUR to to make this a viable solution for getting around these types of things and so it's really up to the CFI exchanges to make sure that they are complying, you know, with all of the sanctions and, and regulatory issues, and it seems like they have been so far. It's hard to believe that somebody could get enough money into DeFi at this point to really evade what they're what they're attempting to.
7: Lee, and you know, I'm really curious here. You make this point on capital controls and Russia's ability to really clamp down on people who are the ordinary citizens who are trying to move their money into crypto. And I'm wondering what that says more broadly about a government's ability to stop people from transacting in cryptocurrencies when they need to?
8: Yeah, well, look, there's a very good reason why people like me deeply believe in what's going on in DeFi. Uh, and it's not for some crazy libertarian reason. It's it's because of things like this. You know, the United States is only one country on this earth, and there are a lot of other places where you don't want to be holding your entire net worth in some you know <clears throat> kangaroo currency. And the ruble has been terrible for a decade now. So um, I think it's a very important you know concept that this ecosystem ends up flourishing. What you're also seeing right now is this battle between centralized stable coins and decentralized algorithmic stable coins. Terra Luna is going crazy right now because there's a massive inflow of capital into that protocol because it's a decentralized stablecoin. There is no fiat bank account that a government can uh, regulate and clamp down on and, and take your, you know, stablecoin. Whereas USDC or some of these other centralized stablecoins, they can absolutely do that. There's literal dollars sitting in a vault somewhere. So I, I think there's a very interesting uh, difference between you know, those two frameworks.
7: Yeah, it's interesting. Luna is definitely worth discussing at some point again soon. But I do want to also get your thoughts here, Lee, on this idea of uh, what you call the cryptoization of Forex and this idea that there really are only a couple of currencies here that convert easily. To what extent do we see what's going on in the world today accelerating that move from traditional foreign exchange as we know it to crypto?
8: Yeah, this is... <clears throat> absolutely inevitable, and there are a lot of things in crypto that I don't think are completely inevitable. This is one of them. <clears throat> Trading with a bank, where they're taking this huge spread for you to move dollars into euro or, or yen or whatever, is is absolutely going to go away. No matter how big that is, there's going to be a curve pool for every one of these pairs, and firms like ours are going to provide liquidity to those pairs and and be the the capital. Um, It's inevitable, the the spreads will be smaller, the fees will be smaller, you'll be able to do it instantaneously. All of the framework for this at scale is in place today. It's literally just a matter of liquidity in the system at this point.
3: Lee, you have been tweeting furiously about what's been going on in Russia. You said earlier that you were speaking with your family there, that your family had no clue what's going on, zero idea what's about to happen to the economy. All they get is government propaganda. It's scary in the worst Orwellian way. What do you think about big tech's responsibility here? We're seeing Apple pull products from the country. Ford as well. We assume there will be more. Um, but you know, how how else can businesses step up?
8: Yeah, it's sad. Look, my my wife's parents are sixty odd uh, sixty. They've lived in Russia their entire lives. They're not digital natives, right? Um, and so they're very much dependent on um, a specific flow of information. as is much of that country. The concept that everybody has access to a VPN and uh, you know good sources of information is com- completely false, obviously. Uh, and to expect everybody to do that would be would be false as well. Do big tech companies have an obligation? no, look, they're companies. They don't have an obligation to do anything but make money. That's just the reality of it. Do they have a moral obligation at some point? Um, I would say that you know each of these individual CEOs, it would behoove them to, at this point, attempt to do the right thing. Apple makes how many tens of billions of dollars in profit? A a, a quarter? I mean, yeah. Look, I I think at some point they have to put some values above making, you know, what's the margin that they're going to lose off of clamping down on certain things to attempt to move this along a little faster. I think that may be smart.
3: All right. Well, thank you for sharing that personal experience. And our hearts go out to your wife's parents. Uh, Thank you for joining us as well. Lee Drogan, Starkiller Capital, along with Bloomberg Shanali Basik. Appreciate it. Well, he made headlines and caused a few headaches by tracking Elon Musk's jet. Now, 19-year-old Jack Sweeney is at it again, but this time he's tracking jets owned by some of Russia's richest oligarchs following the invasion of Ukraine. We don't know for certain if the millionaires and billionaires are the ones on board, but thanks to Sweeney's programming and Twitter bots, we can track the plane's movement around the world. Join me now, Jack Sweeney himself, founder of Ground Control and tracker of billionaires. I'm also joined by our Ed Ludlow, Jack why did you go from tracking Elon Musks to Russian oligarchs? What are you trying to achieve here?
2: Well, people asked they knew I had the tracking ability of all these aircraft and I found the list of these oligarchs and Putin on and all that, so I just started tracking them because people wanted me to.
0: Well, that's a pretty straightforward answer, Jack. Give give us a sense of the technology that goes into this. How do you make this happen?
2: Yeah, so uh ever since ever since like 9/11 there's this new technology called ADS-B where all these planes, all the planes are required to transmit their location through their transponder. So there's all these websites and companies that receive this data and I get that data and I'm able to analyze it in my program and post it to Twitter.
3: Now, we've noticed quite a few of these jets going to interesting places. Are you seeing any trends? Where are they right now?
2: Uh, they're pretty much all over the world. Um so you know the united states and a few of that all you know just from russia to russia but no specific trend of leaving
0: and jack you kind of answered pretty straightforward you did this because people asked you to do it right we've been following yeah. you a little while now in terms of you tracking elon musk jet but what's in it for you i mean you're a young guy respectfully what's the rationale
2: here uh well i just have a lot of interest in aviation and now there's some good attention to everything i'm doing so it's fun to track these planes and code the stuff and create the twitter accounts
3: do you feel like you have some sort of moral obligation here does that play into this at all
2: uh... Well, people wanted it so i mean they can do whatever they want with it there's people that seem to think that these people shouldn't be allowed in the united states or other countries so there seems to be some interest in it that way That. They don't want these type of people. So Jack,
0: previously you'd had some engagement with Elon Musk about your tracking of his jet. Do you mind to give us an update on where you kind of left that?
2: Um, Well, he seemed to no longer be interested in anything and then he ended up blocking me after uh, all the media about the whole account and everything went out in public. And uh, he got further, a higher level of blocking, but seemed to give up on that. And now he doesn't really seem to care anymore.
3: So to that point, it sounds like you're going to continue to do this, no matter what Elon has to say about it or not. Yeah. Is there somewhere you want to take this, Jack? I mean, what's next?
2: Uh, I'd like to like grow a website rather than just be on Twitter, so I have more options than just creating Twitter posts.
0: Jack, tell me a little bit about you. What's your background? How did you learn to, to program in this way and, and program these Twitter bots? to? Because it's very specific, right? You get a lot of data from the system in terms of where a plane is, its location, but you've set this up in a really specific way, basically based on takeoff landing and the city of origin for that plane. Walk us through it.
2: Uh, yeah, so there, I, ha- I had some aviation experience. My dad works in aviation, and I knew a, a little bit of coding, and I just had interest in all of it. And during COVID, I had a lot of free time, so I just started messing around with it, especially with Elon. You know, I had an interest in him, and I knew he had a private jet. So I just had the idea to create a Twitter bot because there's a lot of different type of bots on Twitter, and I created the plane tracking one.
3: What do your parents think about all this since you mentioned your dad?
2: Uh, they think it's pretty cool and all their friends know, know <laughs> about it and they think it's pretty cool too.
3: All right, well we'll keep watching those trackers. Jack Sweeney, founder of Ground Control um, and our Ed Ludlow. Ed, you know, obviously this is a story that you've continued to follow for a while. What do you make of Jack's determination here?
0: Yeah, there's two sides to this. First of all, the reason I love this show, Emily, and I love working with you is that this is about technology, right? A 19-year-old that taught himself these skills, and he's basically giving a lens into the life of billionaires, rich people that you wouldn't otherwise have, and then you have the moral side of it, right? There's a lot of outrage in Europe about several oligarchs, what they're doing, how they're speaking, where they're conducting business, so it kind of gives you a lens into that as well.
3: Well, and it's certainly interesting seeing where these planes are. I know you've been looking very closely at the maps. Are there any interesting trends that you've pulled out?
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. The the debate right now is over no-fly zone, right? So we just had news after market on Tuesday that United will stop flying over Russian airspace. That's a commercial carrier, of course. But we're tracking the movements of several oligarchs billionaires one being roman abramovich for example the owner of chelsea fc in the uk because he might be involved in peace talks somewhere along the way
3: Hmm. all right we'll keep watching ed thank you that does it for this edition of bloomberg technology we're going to be joined tomorrow by brett taylor salesforce co-ceo off the back of the company's earnings results and anthony noto ceo of sofi you won't want to miss those conversations this is bloomberg